The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'll begin the reading in chapter 1, verse 24. <clears throat> now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of the Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the assembly of which I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God that was given me toward you to fulfill the word of God the mystery that has been hidden from the ages and from the generations. But now it has been manifested to his saints, to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ, for which I labor also, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily." For I would have you know how greatly I strive for you and those at Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, they being knit together in love and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, that they may know the mystery of God, Christ, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. This I say that no one may delude you with persuasiveness of speech. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing and beholding your order and and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word and we thank you for the strength that it provides. And we do pray for your Spirit's help this day that we might understand it fully and correctly. And indeed, help us even in the midst of our physical weariness to be able to to concentrate, to understand what you are saying to us this day. And may you direct us and encourage us in our faith, in the faith that Paul proclaims, uh, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. The prospect of finding lost or buried treasure or a map leading to it, has excited men, women, and children for hundreds of years. Whether actual legends such as Blackbeard, or what makes up some of our favorite yarns in literature, such as Treasure Island, or movie plots like The Goonies, the idea of discovering lost gold or pirate treasure captures the imagination. We wonder what it would be like to find a treasure map and put all the clues together and then actually find the treasure itself. How enthralling such an experience would be. Well, central to Paul's teaching in the first five verses of Colossians 2 is treasure. Even all the treasures that are exceedingly more valuable than all the gold, silver, or jewels that you might find in a treasure chest on a sunken sunken pirate ship. As Paul comes to the conclusion of his exposition of faith, which we could say began in chapter 1 and verse 3, even of what we can arguably consider an extended introduction, he continues to expertly weave theological themes in order to encourage the Colossians in their faith, directing them to greater maturity in the Lord Jesus. As we noted last week, chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2 and verse 5 are two subsections that parallel one another have respective and overlapping chiastic structures, which may be part of a larger chiastic structure that begins and ends with rejoicing in chapter 1 and verse 24 and ends in chapter 2 and verse 5. 
again, the, 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 the apostle's writing is theologically dense. He gives us a lot to chew on and attempt to digest. And that continues to be the case with our text this morning. So where does Paul begin in, in verse 1? Continuing the theme of struggle from verse 29, where he said, For which also I toil, struggling, striving according to the energy of him, the energizing one in me, in power. For I wish you to know how great a struggle I have on behalf of you and those in Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. The term that Paul uses for struggle is from... Um, which the English word agony is derived. It's related to the world of athletics with a sense of violent struggle or contest. And whereas Paul's striving was related to the proclamation of the gospel in the previous section, now he more specifically states that his agony is on behalf of these Colossian Christians. And not only them, but also the Laodiceans who were about 10 miles down the river from Colossae. Paul seems to be implying that there was some measure of mutual fellowship between these congregations and it was certainly helpful for them to know of each other's faith and existence in the same geographical region. You know, we probably have a hard time getting our minds around this because for many of us on our commute to church this morning, we passed at least half a dozen churches, if not more, depending on the length and route of the drive. But imagine for a moment that we're like the church in Colossae And Paul's writing to us and tells us also of the church in Nashville, which is the only other church in the immediate general vicinity. Just two churches, not hundreds. Paul then mentions that his struggle is also for all believers, for all churches that hadn't met him in person, which would certainly have been quite a few, since he wasn't the only apostle planting churches and was um, only one man who could be in one place at one time. What's the implication of this? Well, Paul expands upon this idea in verse 5 where he brings up his absence again. But for now, it's clear that that Paul's ministry, his toil and struggle, uh, can really and genuinely include those believers whom he has yet to encounter in the flesh, in person, face to face. The apostle goes on to elaborate the purpose, the goal of his striving in verse 2. So that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and in all fullness of the assurance of the understanding... In knowledge of the mystery of God, Christ. The word encouraged carries with it the ideas of strengthening, exhorting, and comforting. Uh, It can literally mean calling to. And is the verb form for the word paraclete, used of the Holy Spirit by Jesus in John 14. And maybe encourage, uh, the word translating it encourage may may, uh, very well be the best way to understand Paul's usage here. It's combining these ideas of, of providing strength, and comfort of exhorting, of of spurring on the hearts of these believers. And why would Paul want to encourage their hearts? Well, because it's from there that flow the issues of life. You know, if the hearts of these believers are emboldened, receive courage, that means their lives will be lived with courage, with the kind of strength that is required. And this ministry of encouragement, which is Certainly, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is continued by uh, the Holy Spirit through the church, through Christ's ministers, proclaiming his word, setting the glories of the gospel before the brethren week after week. See, the saints need encouraging. The church needs emboldening. And this isn't some type of empty pep talk, but an exhorting in the truth, even the singular truth of the person and work of Christ. 
But Paul continues to mention that his struggle is also for the sake of them being knit together in love. Love isn't a new theme for Paul, having mentioned the Colossians' love for all the saints back in chapter 1 and verse 4. And what Paul goes on to say here continues the theme of maturity that undergirds the entire letter. Yes, they have love, but here he speaks to them being knit together, united together. We could even render it welded together in love. Love is a key unifying factor, and certainly that's important for the church, for Christians, particularly at this point in history when they were in a vast minority in society. And love is still central to the uniting of the church, even as love necessarily entails forgiveness when wrongs have been done. You know, as all of you know, life in community, life in relationships is wonderful, but it's also challenging. Someone rubs you the wrong way or says something unkind, whether inadvertently or intentionally, and you're presented with the opportunity to let love cover it and continue on in fellowship, or in love, say something to them so that the offense may be properly dealt with. That's life in community, life in the church, even in your own homes. Paul's phrasing also seems to indicate that he wants them knit together in all fullness of the assurance of the understanding. Put another way, Paul wants these believers united in a proper understanding of the gospel. And to what does that understanding lead? All fullness. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul referenced the fullness, the abundance, the riches of the glory. Here it's assurance, conviction, or certainty. Paul makes use of the word all or every yet again. And notice, notice how ironclad he makes his argument. He doesn't have partial certainty. He isn't merely optimistic about this assurance, hoping it will eventually work out. Now, Paul is speaking with a measure of complete and absolute certainty regarding this understanding. And how can he do that? Because of the subject, because the focus of the understanding is knowledge of the mystery of God. Now, recall that Paul raised the theme of mystery in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The mystery, the one having been concealed from the ages and from the generations, but now he is revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known the abundance of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. What's the mystery of God? It's Christ. It's Jesus. Paul is certain of Christ. Paul is certain of what Christ has accomplished. What is revealed about Christ and what can be known about Him and wants the hearts of these saints to grow in the same. Love and the assurance of understanding weld the saints together, which galvanizes them against attacks that are made, particularly attacks upon the truths of the gospel. And Paul certainly serves as a model for these believers so that they may not be led astray, even as he goes on to speak to in verse 4. But what the apostle is doing is setting, he's setting up his argument from the perspective that their full assurance in Christ will make the seductive speech less appealing. You know, when you have a clear understanding and knowledge of what is genuine, then that which is counterfeit should pale by comparison. Well, that brings us to verse 3 and the center point for this section. So what does Paul say here in the middle that warrants the focus of our attention as he continues to build his argument? In whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden? Now, clearly, he's continuing to tell the Colossians about Christ. And just look at the description here. In Christ are all the treasures hidden or stored away. Don't overlook Paul's use of all again. As he's further solidifying his case for the exclusivity of faith in Christ 
and Christ alone. But stop and think about it. If Christ has all the treasures, then shouldn't that invite an exploration? Shouldn't that incite a treasure hunt? Granted, Paul's not talking about treasures such as gold and silver, but treasure, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and hopefully that's not too much of a letdown. You know, wisdom is another theme already mentioned by Paul in his letter uh, thus far, first introduced in chapter 1 and verse 9, and more recently mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 28. We can think of Paul as imparting Solomonic wisdom as, as what is found in the book of Proverbs. L- listen to the first six verses of Proverbs 2 and hear how much, how much of it overlaps with the point that Paul is making to his audience. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Jesus is the fullness and fulfillment of wisdom. And the very wisdom and knowledge Solomon's son was to seek out the very wisdom and knowledge for which Paul would have the churches explore is the person of Jesus Christ. And perhaps this is stating the obvious. But what Paul's saying is that Jesus is the secret plan. He's the treasure. He is the heart of God's plan that's now been revealed. Jesus is the point. And I, I know we know that. And perhaps we know it so well that we overlook it or take it for granted. But, but try to put yourself in Paul's place, writing to this young church with this gospel still being relatively new and the competing religions and voices that were present in that day. Paul is making an exclusive claim about the Lord Jesus. And while the idea of being Christ-centered has probably been overused in some of our circles, Paul is thoroughly Christ-centered and unapologetically so. There's nothing that needs to be added to Christ. There's no extra secret no additional power or insight. As one scholar puts it, at every stage of Christian experience, what you most deeply need is not something other than the king himself. You always need more of him. He is what it's all about. Christ is the all, and this fact and this reality is assuring. It's confidence building. And rightly takes Paul into his argument in verse 4, which is the first overtly negative statement that Paul makes. The first clear hint that something is problematic or potentially problematic. This I say so that no one will deceive you with persuasive words. Now the Greek word that Paul uses for persuasive words is a combination of two words. The first means calculated to persuade and can be used in relation to people who have the power of persuasion. It's a term Uh, readily used uh, by the likes of Plato and Aristotle and uh, Aeschylus and others. And the second word is logos, uh, which is simply the Greek word for word, as many of you know. It's the only occurrence of this particular term in the New Testament, and it's clearly used in a negative sense, though in these other sources, in other sources of ancient ancient literature, it's pretty much used always in a positive sense. So, so Paul expresses his concern about these persuasive words, these convincing-sounding arguments. But what has he mentioned before the persuasive words? That the Colossians would not be deceived or deluded. Now, interestingly enough, this is a word that's also a combination of two Greek words, 
one of which is a form of the word uh, logos, word, and the other which means aside or beside. So Paul doesn't want the Colossians to succumb to words that will take them aside. The only other time this term is used in the New Testament is in James 1.22. But this language of deception, being led astray by persuasive words, what might that echo? Well, Satan's deception of Eve in the garden. It's technical, uh, technically, it's a different word, but it's a similar concept. So think about this. Here in Colossians, here's this new church, this new bride of Christ, who has sanctuary access. And Paul doesn't want the saints to be deluded by the specious tongue serpents, beguiled by those from the synagogue of Satan. And that brings us to the final verse of our of our text of study this morning in verse 5 where Paul begins saying for even if in for even if the body I am absent but the spirit with you I am now I realize that word ordering makes Paul sound as if he's talking like Yoda but it helps us set out the parallelism with a bit more clarity the body and the spirit are juxtaposed and despite not being with the Colossians physically Paul yet states his presence with them in the spirit the Apostle says something similar to the Corinthians when he writes, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Paul's bodily absence is obviously understood, but what does he mean when he says he's with them in spirit? Is it just some vague, spiritual-sounding thing to say, kind of like, well, you're in my thoughts? Well, no, it's, it's more profound than that, but before we further explore the answer to this question, let's consider how, once again, Paul is imitating Christ in his apostolic ministry even as we noted last week in relation to chapter 1 and verse 24, which structurally corresponds to chapter 2 and verse 5. Think of it this way. Even as our celebration of the ascension today gives us a clue, where is Jesus? Well, he's in heaven upon the throne. He is not here. Jesus is bodily absent from us. But how is Jesus present? By the Holy Spirit whom he sent. Well, Paul's say, saying something quite similar. While he's bodily absent, and even absent from this particular body of believers, he says he's with them in the Spirit. I'm inclined to, to think that or understand the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, though there may be a sense in which Paul is saying he's connected to these saints by his writing, verbally through Epaphras, or even through prayer. But still at the bottom of those ideas is the work of the Holy Spirit using these means. If we apply Paul's own teaching to the Ephesians, then I think the case becomes even stronger. There is one body and one spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, Paul is present with these believers, even as we could argue that it is by the Spirit that we are with the saints all around the world today on the Lord's Day in worship and even those in heaven through the unity supplied by the Holy Spirit. And through this connection with these believers, what is Paul doing? Rejoicing and seeing. The rejoicing is a familiar term, even as it's another connecting theme to chapter 1 and verse 24, uh, this rejoicing acting as bookends to this section. Paul's choosing to say that he's seeing seems mildly ironic, especially since he's never physically been with the Colossian church. But perhaps we can conclude that he sees their faith through the reports supplied by Epaphras. But what's the cause for rejoicing? What is he seeing? The order and steadfastness of the in Christ faith of you. 
which we smooth out to read, your faith in Christ. Though it's debated order and steadfastness may be military metaphors, the church is drawn up in proper battle array with a solid wall of defense, namely its faith in Christ. There also may be a hint at architectural and arboreal metaphors with these respective terms, which would be in keeping with the ways in which Paul refers to the church as a building that is constructed as well as to a body that grows. Perhaps even more interesting is that the word for steadfastness or firmness can also be rendered firmament, which takes us back to the creation account in Genesis 1 in reference to the solid vault of heaven. Other forms of this word are found in the New Testament conveying this firm, strengthening imagery. In Acts 3-7, when Peter heals the lame beggar, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, resurrected him, and immediately made strong were his feet and ankles. Or similarly, in 2 Timothy 2-19, Paul states, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. The noun phrase that Paul uses referring to their faith in Christ is actually its only occurrence in his writings. But notice how the warning in verse 4 is met with the confident words of Paul's description of their orderly and solid faith. And what is the bedrock of the foundation? What is the principle of, for their good order? Well, their faith in Christ. And that's the whole Christian position. And anything which claims to be an advance upon that faith is, in fact, a retreat from it. The focus of the Colossians' faith needs to be singularly upon Christ and remain there. The implicit encouragement in what Paul is saying echoes what he said in chapter 1 and verse 23, to stay put in the faith, stable and steadfast. These saints don't need anything in addition to Christ. So how might we further appropriate the Apostles' teaching uh, more for our context today? Well, first, first consider the model of faith that Paul provides of how to endure the tribulations, the suffering, the struggle in which he's engaged. He doesn't turn inwardly. He doesn't communicate, Dear diary, here's how hard things are for me right now. No, Paul's faith looks outward. He considers how his suffering can benefit others, edify the church, strengthen the faith of the saints. And I realize that Paul's an apostle, and we might think, well, it's his job to react and act to the struggle in this fashion. But certainly we are called to imitate his faith in this as well. As one writer notes, we live best when we put the purposes of God and the needs of others first, even if it means that it brings danger and distress to our own lives. We handle suffering in our lives best when in the midst of it, We reach out to help others instead of focusing on our own private pain and anguish. That's a challenging statement. Because isn't it our natural reaction to turn inwardly, to want others to serve us or to even think that we deserve to be served because because of how hard our circumstances might be? But Paul's example provides us with a corrective for that kind of self-centered disposition, which can even be an aid in managing the struggle Enduring the suffering. You know, looking how to help others while you're going through hard times is even a good antidote to melancholy and can help stave off depression. Another point to consider in relation to the struggle and suffering that are part and parcel with the Christian faith is to recognize that it's not senseless, but has meaning in the grand scheme of things. 
And God can use your example of faith in the midst of difficulty as a way of encouraging and bolstering the faith of others. This can even happen without your knowing it. And like so many other things in the Christian faith that the world doesn't understand, suffering and trials are transformed in Christ. As Paul writes to the Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Another aspect of Paul's teaching that we do well to reflect further upon is that we must be clear about who Jesus is and what he has done. And to that end, we go to the Scriptures to continue to explore for the treasures that are there, for the riches of wisdom and knowledge that it contains in order for us to grow and mature in Christ. And this wealth to be gained in our Savior and King is endless, as there's always more for us to learn about the eternal Son of God. We will never exhaust these riches in this life or even in the life to come, which is hard for our minds to fathom. But such is the wealth and riches at our disposal, which Paul is inviting us to seek out and obtain, that are just there waiting for the taking. We must think clearly about the gospel and obtaining this wealth from Christ aids us to that end. And the scriptures teach us the sufficiency of Christ for salvation and life, which also helps us to combat, to combat false teaching and the values that come from false religions and thinking, parading itself as true wisdom or secret knowledge. Part of what Paul is instructing here is that we're not to be corrupted by pagan forms of thought, that we shouldn't bring that thinking to our understanding of Christ. Otherwise, we won't apprehend all that is here. We'll be missing out on the fullness of assurance, of understanding. Again, you don't need Jesus plus something else. Now, I'm not advocating some type of fundamentalism that throws out the baby with the bathwater and that all we should ever read is the Bible, that we should uh, completely ignore other sources of information or something like that. No, there's enough evidence in the Bible itself to indicate that we shouldn't drive into that ditch. But we should, be a, we should be wary of Judaizing tendencies that we have that are present in the church of adding something to Christ as if he's somehow deficient. You know, whether it's a field in one of the sciences or psychology or philosophy or literature or history, we must be clear that they do not make us wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings. God's word holds that exclusive place. And still more, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, being equipped for every good work. This language of being complete, being whole, of being perfect, let, that overlaps with the theme of maturity. Again, that's the point. Paul wants all of the churches to grow up. God the Father wants His children to grow up. Jesus, our big brother, wants us to grow up. And He's lavished gifts upon us from His throne in heaven for that very purpose and end. So seek Christ. Seek the wisdom and knowledge that is to be found in Him and believe that it's by that wisdom and knowledge as revealed to us in His Word that we have a proper understanding of the world that He made. Even made for Himself that same world that he's now redeemed and reconciled. And when we rightly understand who he is and we pursue the treasures of the knowledge and wisdom that are to be found in him, 
then that enables us to properly live and move and have our being in this life. And recognize that wisdom and knowledge, as Solomon, as Jesus advocates, is immensely practical, giving you skill in living in the, in the here and now. You know, if you want to be a good businessman or, or employee, if you want to make money and earn a living to the glory of God, then you must have this foundational and comprehensive wisdom and knowledge that comes from God's Word. And then in whatever field or calling you pursue, you'll need more specific knowledge. But Christ in whom are hidden, are stored away all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, must be your first pursuit. So give yourselves anew to the treasure hunt for these riches mapped out in the Scriptures, even as they ever direct your faith to Christ Himself and to Christ alone. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the riches that are here in your word. And we thank you for the teaching for the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And may you ever help us to take in this word and to digest it and for it to be the food and drink that our souls need. May your spirit help us so that we might more faithfully live to your honor and glory. We ask for your help for these things recognizing our weakness and dependence upon you. And may you direct us to honor and glorify you in the lives that we pursue. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.